1: So we revere paintings and we revere buildings because they've got a great history or they're very old or they were great artists. But we don't seem to revere our horticultural history as much.
2: The conditions that we live in right now are defined by the existence of these forests 300 million years ago.
3: The catalogues, they kind of help to track the introduction and disappearance of plants, especially exotic species.
4: You know, we're talking about plants of the past and all of that great heritage. New developments, we said, are important for breaking new colours, kind of advancing the plant family, but also being a plant with a
5: purpose. This week, we're journeying back in time to explore the plants of your we'll be talking about the first trees that populated the earth and the garden plants that have mysteriously, or perhaps not so mysteriously, disappeared. These histories have left an imprint on our rocks, our soil, our artifacts, and their footprint is felt not just in the past, but in the way we approach our gardens and green spaces today. So, by going backwards, paradoxically, we hope to come forwards as well, re-examining our own connections with the plants we've grown to love and cherish. Otherlands author, Thomas Halliday, tells us the story of the UK's ecological origins. Botanist, Raphael Gewurz, describes how even garden plants can go extinct. And Karen Clark gives us the scoop on the RHS's Digital Dig project, an effort to digitise the many, many thousands of old plant nursery catalogues in our collections. But that's not all. Mr Plant Geek, aka Michael Perry, will close out the show by bringing us into the present with a love letter to an exciting new hyacinth. It's an episode chock-full of deep-rooted flora stories. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS with me, Gareth Richards. Let's get right into it, shall we? The rainy, grassy, temperate world that we call home here in the UK would want something else entirely. In fact, it's had many lives from tropical swampland to inhospitable tundra to much, much more. Here to dig into the distant past and uncover the plants that once dominated this place is Thomas Halliday, paleobiologist and author, who wrote the massively popular book Other Lands, A World in the Making. Here's Thomas starting us off with an excerpt from his introduction.
2: To consider the landscapes that once existed is to feel the draw of a temporal wanderlust. My hope is that you will read this in the vein of a naturalist's travel book, albeit one of land's distance in time rather than space, and begin to see the last 500 million years not as an endless expanse of unfathomable time, but as a series of worlds, simultaneously fabulous yet familiar. I started writing it as a, a way of trying to explore what it might have been like to be within the vast ecosystem. But what I've learned and what has become a theme of the book through writing it is the extent to which although life itself as a whole is resilient, the particular ways in which life exists, the ecosystems, the relationships around are fundamentally extremely fragile. And the one thing that those 16 sites that I feature in the book have in common is that they're gone. And although you know many of their individual components, whether we're talking about ginkgos and birds from the Cretaceous, they're still around. But the precise relationships and totality of those ecosystems can evaporates in an instant and that's obviously something which we should be looking to avoid. The fundamental resilience but fragility of life is an extraordinary lesson from the deep time perspective. The United Kingdom has been home to so many ecosystems from the last 550 million years and actually we're very lucky. On this island to have rock records dating back to the beginnings of life on this planet far up in the far northwest of scotland all the way down to the far southeast of england where we get more into far more recent stuff so the uk is a wonderful location to talk about all of the different environments that the earth has at one time housed well if we're talking about plants of course for the majority of life on this planet, life has been restricted to the land. But some of the first organisms that make it onto land are plants and fungi. And one of the absolute best records of that can be found a place called Rhiney, which is in rural Aberdeenshire, from a site which is about 400 and 10 million years old, back in the Devonian period. And it's at this time that you get the first complex plant ecosystems on land. We there have the very first evidence of roots, plants modifying the bare rock, producing soil for the first time, which ultimately has huge effects in stabilising water courses, changing the ways that rivers flow across landscapes, and of course affecting our atmosphere in taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and building it into initially small, but then later large, large plants, large trees. And indeed in the Carboniferous, I mean the name Carboniferous, it is the time of carbon, the time of coal, that is when the first large forests begin to emerge. And we get evidence of that all the way across the United Kingdom, wherever there are coal mines. And so you might think places like East Lothian or the the Midlands of England or in South Wales. These are places where hot tropical swamps were being produced and where the the first large forests were formed of lepidodendron with scale trees and their relatives. These are extinct plants whose closest relatives are a tiny marshy plant called a quillwort. but they formed some of the first you know 20-30 meter tall trees and in dying and falling into the oxygen poor swamps it is their bodies which get turned into peat and then into coal which of course has huge implications, not only for the atmosphere of the time, but also for the atmospheres of the last 150 years in which we have been burning and then releasing that carbon which had been stored. The conditions that we live in right now are defined by the existence of these forests 300 million years ago. At the time, Earth's landmasses were more or less, at that point, brought together into one single continent called Pangaea, which had a belt of mountains in the centre where the Continents of the Northern Hemisphere and the continents of the Southern Hemisphere had collided and formed this Himalaya-sized, extremely long mountain belt called the Central Pantheon Mountains. And that mountain range, that is where you get this coal belt. So whether you're talking about the Appalachian Mountains in America, which is, of course, where a lot of their coal industry has been based, whether you're talking about the Midlands in Wales or whether you're talking about Westphalia in Germany, all of these coal centres are along this equatorial swamp belt. And with the, the atmosphere at that time having a carbon dioxide concentration of 10 times what it is today, extraordinarily high, these are just conditions that perhaps... Favored the formation of coal in the first place. Ultimately, these plants, the scale trees, were killed off in what's called the Carboniferous Rainforest Collapse. The formation of the scale trees sucking in all of that carbon dioxide and putting it into the bodies of the plants and into the coal fundamentally changed the atmosphere and caused the weather systems to change in such a way that would not support those organisms anymore, and so they went extinct. They're replaced by more drought-tolerant plants, things like conifers. And eventually, we get into the very first flowering plants, which only emerged about 120 million years ago, a relatively short time in paleontological terms, in the early Cretaceous period. And so we can find evidences of all of these sort of stages of plant evolution as we go through the, the rock record of the world and, and indeed in microcosm in the UK. Plants have, of course, always underpinned life on land, right? They were the first to get here, along with fungi with whom they have an inseparable relationship. And they're the basis of, of all food chains as well. And as a result, we really should be sort of, you know, concerned about the conditions that allow plants to live in particular environments. Now, of course, talking about the carboniferous when atmospheric conditions are so different, there's a tendency perhaps to look at that and say, oh, well, things have been extremely different before. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with a high carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere. And of course, sure, there's nothing intrinsically wrong if you have zero starting point, but we are not starting from that position. We're starting from a point where the plants around our world are adapted to a an atmosphere of you know 350 parts per million, and we are way exceeding that at this point. We have plants which are adapted to a relative ice house world, not the sweltering heat of the of the greenhouses of, say, the Cretaceous or the Permian. And so ultimately, if we are to be looking at conservation in a very sort of basic sense that the organisms you need to conserve are those plants and the fungi at the very base of the ecosystems that support everything else. If we're looking forward into the future, we should therefore, you know, be really concerned about distribution of those plants, about the worries of destroying the communities of plants that depend on one another through the introduction of invasive plants. So, for example, you know, in the United Kingdom, a rhododendron Mm -hmm. is an appalling plant because they completely destroy any kind of, you know, coniferous rainforests that we have on the West Coast and in Ireland as well because they have no natural Competitors here, they thrive and they grow and they suffocate the seedlings of other plants that provide the support for the rest of the organisms that we ultimately also depend on. So when it comes to plants, we can really think of the plant as the building in which we live and the communities that they form being that support network that allows the ecosystem to function as a whole. Ultimately, what extinction is, is a separation of those relationships between organisms. And so by damaging the individual components that anchor this web together, that is when you get the collapse of a system as a whole and the mass extinction. And it is something which is um, always avoidable and it's
5: something we should be aiming to avoid. Thanks, Thomas. You can find a link to other lands in our show notes. So as Thomas said at the end, when it comes to plants, we can really think of the plant as a building in which we live and the communities that they form being that support network which allows the ecosystem to function as a whole. And gardens are ecosystems. Whether we like it or not, they are ecosystems. They are part of wider ecosystems in themselves. Everything in that garden is related and everything will have some kind of function. It's like slugs. Well, slugs might seem like a pest, But actually, they all turn plant material, whether that's dead or alive, depending on the species, into fertilizer for more plants. So that thing that might seem annoying or unpleasant will actually have some kind of function. And the more species we have in our gardens, the healthier and better functioning our garden ecosystem will be. Another thing that Thomas talks about is mass extinction as the collapse of a system as a whole which is an accumulation of little breaks between the relationships of many organisms. He's looking at forests, kind of zoomed out over millions of years. But our next guest, Q-botanist Raphael Gewurz, on the other hand, is looking at the individual trees. Since 1998, Raphael's been compiling a list of each plant in the world, including those that have gone extinct. Today, he's here to discuss something that surprised him. A weirdly large percentage of these extinct plants were once grown in cultivation.
1: I first became interested in extinct plants in the 1980s when I was at university and when sting was saving the rainforest and when all kinds of media reports came out about the state of nature. And now so many years on, we still are talking about the rainforest and still things don't seem to have happened. At the moment they are saying that we are in a sixth extinction event and from the research I've done with my colleagues we have proven that extinction rate of plants at the moment is 300 times higher than the average extinction would expect. So there is indeed scientific evidence that we are having an extinction event. So there are some uh, 700 plants approximately it changes every week listed as extinct, which is a very high number compared to, for example, animal groups, where there are also extinctions, of course, but not to the same number. The tragic thing about it is that many of these plants that are now listed as extinct were once cultivated. Actually, something like a quarter of them were once in cultivation, but disappeared. There are many reasons for that and the most important one is the First World War when all the young men went to the front and all the Victorian greenhouses, there was no money to heat them anymore so all the plants froze to death and many tropical exotic plants must have become extinct around that time because they were the last plants known in cultivation. They haven't been found in the wild anymore. Also, after the war, many of the gardeners had unfortunately died, and so the knowledge has been lost to grow these plants. Some of these plants, for example orchids, were very difficult to grow, and you had to have specialist knowledge to grow them. And if these gardeners did not return, the people who would take over, they would not know how to care for them. other reasons why plants in cultivation become extinct is because they go out of fashion. As we all know, we all go to Chelsea every year to see what the newest fashion is. And we throw out our old plants and put in the new fashionable plants. And so this, of course, isn't new. That has been happening for 200 years. But in a few years, they may not be fashionable anymore. They may not be micropropagated anymore. And then they will slowly disappear. So there isn't really a system in place like that is with zoos, for example, where zoos exchange animals to keep them going. Another reason, of course, is we see that at Kew Gardens as well, when staff change, many of the gardeners, they work for short periods. And so they may know that this plant is really special and should be really taken care of, but people come after them. They may have never heard of this plant and know nothing about it and they may not look after it as they should have done. And so that is also another problem why plants are becoming extinct in cultivation. It seems very sad that they became extinct because obviously they could have had a second chance if we would have taken it, if we would have continued to growing the more preserved seeds in seed banks. From some of them, there are still specimens in herbaria, and some of them have seeds as well. But from all the research that's been done up to now, it is nearly impossible to get them to grow again. But of course, you never know what the techniques in the future will be. And it may be that one day in the future, we will be able to resurrect such very old seeds. I've always been interested in growing plants that are extinct in the wild. I've always had a number of them I've always been interested in conserving them and keeping them going. Not in the least because in my own country, Belgium, that's where I'm from, the only endemic plant is extinct in the wild, so it only survives as a cultivated plant. So that was one of the plants I definitely wanted to grow. It's a, a grass. If you have a garden and you're interested, growing plants that are extinct in the wild it definitely helps to keep that biodiversity alive. So we revere paintings and we revere buildings because they've got a great history or they're very old or they were great artists. But we don't seem to revere our Horticultural history as much, and I very much like to celebrate that, because I think for us it seems very normal that you go to a garden center and you got 2,000 different plants to choose from, but it's not normal. It's something special. It is. It is something of us, of our heritage, the people we are, the gardens we we have. That is not like everyone else on earth. No, that is that is really special, that is part of our culture which goes back a long, a long time. Every plant has a story of discovery and rediscovery and how they were brought back and who brought them back in their lives and uh, how they died, how they lived. So the, every plant has a history and extinct plants often have an added aspect to that.
5: Thanks, Raphael. Raphael originally wrote about extinct garden plants in an article for The Plant Review, the RHS's quarterly magazine for plant lovers. You can subscribe using a link in our show notes or by searching RHS The Plant Review. I love how gardening can connect us to our heritage but also to our own personal histories as well. So one of my favourite plants in my garden I inherited from my granny. She was a bit naughty and she visited a very famous garden back in the 80s and and took a couple of seeds from an agapanthus, which is a beautiful summer flowering plant, lovely kind of grassy clumps of leaves and heads of the most amazing sky blue flowers. She treasured it and it lived by her back door for years and years. And when she died, it was one of the things I inherited from her. And that plant has come with me through garden after garden, decade after decade. And it's lovely to have that kind of really tangible reminder of her with me all the time. And as Raphael mentioned, and as we all know, plants come in and out of fashion. One decade, gardens will be decked out in Wisteria, and the next, succulents will be all the rage. One of the best ways it turns out to track this over the course of horticultural history is through old plant nursery catalogues. For the past few months, the RHS has been in the process of digitizing our huge collection of these catalogues in the hopes of making them accessible to gardeners throughout the world. Here's project manager Karen Clark with the latest.
3: The catalogues date back to the 17th century and cover all manner of plants that were collected by various different nurseries to be sold. Most of them were rootstock or seeds originally that people would buy. And what we wanted to do was give people the opportunity to see the collections and to do some transcription work on them and some geotagging as well. So the catalogues were acquired for gardeners and botanists at the RHS as a reference collection. And they were collected because they chart kind of the fascinating environmental and social history of how gardening infrastructure has changed over time. They kind of help to track the introduction and disappearance of plants, especially exotic species. And very much they reveal the move away from local family-run nursery businesses that once ringed our towns, supplying families with homegrown fruit, vegetables and ornamental plants. So up to the 1960s, any town would be ringed by market gardens growing food and nursery gardens growing plants. And the collection kind of tracks the growth of commercial horticulture and garden centres and demonstrates the increasing use of less sustainable materials such as plastic pots and the mass production and sourcing of plants from much further afield which obviously has a negative impact on the environment and a loss of growing culture around local communities. The RHS use contemporary catalogues to form the basis of the plant finder that is a major source for checklists and registers of plant names compiled by the RHS. And they are really important for taxonomists since the plant's botanical name is determined by the first publication of that plant name. And there's various plants that were in the catalogs that we don't have anymore or have got a different plant name. So there's one catalogue by Phillips that my volunteer was fascinated in where he decided that he was going to rename all the plants in his catalogue because he wanted to name them after famous people of the time. So he took it upon himself rather than to use Linnaeus or any of the other kind of naming structures that he would allocate his own common names. And there's various people that we'd never really heard of. But yeah, he thought it would be interesting to use his own solution for that and have greater meritorious figures as his record instead. Part of the project, we've actually been working with some digital ambassadors. So my colleague, Emily, who's Digital Engagement Officer for the RHS, has worked with two different groups of young people to explore the impact of these nurseries within their local communities. So she's worked with a school in Hackney that's actually based on the original site of Lodgages, which had hothouses. And they were famous at the time for having probably the biggest hothouses in the world. And we've got various catalogues from there, from around the early 1800s, and the the hot houses were massive, and they had steam powered heating to keep it hot and in you know in the environment. And they had to experiment to make sure the plants could actually survive, but they were able to keep a wide range of tropical plants there. So they had palms and orchids and various other species that they imported and then sold. Things like wisteria and rhododendrons and the white lotus as well and now obviously we you know you see wisteria everywhere it's very commonplace. So the digital dig has been a really successful project for the RHS we've been really pleased with the way that people have wanted to dig into hidden horticulture and do this work and we're hoping to release the work onto the new online collections portal when it's released later on in the year, spring 2023.
5: Thanks there to Karen. The Digital Dig project was set up with National Lottery Heritage funding, and most of the work was done by remote volunteers across the UK and the world. See our show notes for more information about the project and how you can volunteer with the RHS in future. And finally, let's get out of the past and into the present. Here's Mr Plant Geek, a.k.a. Michael Perry, to share his favourite new-ish hyacinth variety.
4: So when I was young, I was really gardening with my grandparents, but what really caught my imagination was always growing things in different ways, kind of newer plants, things that were really different, weird, wacky, very unusual. I then joined Thompson & Morgan when I was 18 years old and started working on the new product catalogs, which was really a dream job from day one. So I was behind a lot of the new product introductions over the years, such as the Tomtato, tomatoes, potatoes on one plant, egg and chips plant, aubergine on the top, potato on the bottom, so given my history of introducing brand new plants, today I really want to tell you about probably one of the biggest, most expensive new plant introductions that we embraced at Thompson & Morgan. And this was a brand new hyacinth and it was called Midnight Mystic. And we actually purchased the first free bulbs of this for 50,000 euros each, because this was a hyacinth with a really, really big difference in so many different ways. So the Midnight Mystic Hyacinth was first spotted at a really quite unknown spring bulb fair in the north of Holland, it's called the Lentertown, and they have this in a very small village in the bulb region in Braesand, and this brand new Hyacinth was actually shown there first of all, so it wasn't shown at Chelsea Flower Show or any Glossy or Big, this was at a very small bulb show in a small town in the Netherlands. So. Actually, our product developers were there. They spotted this new plant that was really a beacon against the other hyacinths. Because, of course, you've got purples, you've got oranges, you've got pinks. This was black. And when I say black, I'm not talking dark blue or dark purple. You know, the pigment in this hyacinth was distinctly different. And it really, oh, my God, I'm just thinking about it now. This hyacinth is really, it is sultry, it's sexy. It's just the most amazing flower because It has that darkness that comes from very different genetics. So first of all, you've got the different colour genetics in there as well. But what comes with that is also a very different fragrance, which is also sexy and sultry because that fragrance is not your usual hyacinth fragrance that is really sickly, very sweet. This is a very different spicy layered fragrance, which is kind of cinnamon, cloves, kind of based around a lot of those tones. It goes with everything. So you could have this with bright yellow aconites, for example, orange, brown sugar tulips, but you could also go with different blues and whites and maybe even a black and white domino container, which I've planted up over the years. It's easy to grow. It can be grown indoors, outdoors, but I would generally recommend that you grow this in a container, put it on a tabletop outside, and really give it prized place because you know you are gonna want to enjoy this Hyacinth. So still, after 20, almost 25 years now, Midnight Mystic still is quite mystical and elusive because the stocks are still relatively low because this is a hyacinth that needs to be reproduced by micropropagation. So each time you create a new batch of bulbs, it takes a, a whole seven-year cycle to do that. So it's not not widely available. So you may be lucky enough to find some online. There's only a limited number of suppliers. This time of year, you'll be too late to buy the bulbs. You might be lucky enough to find them in flower in the local garden centre, or it depends really on those specialist shops that really know their stuff when it comes to new plants and unusual plants as well. So it's well worth hunting down. If you do want to look for dry bulbs, then hold on until, say, September time, and you will then be able to find this in the garden centres and openly available online as well. But it's really worth it. It's the wildfires wow plant for me. I couldn't have chosen any other plant. And of course, you know we're talking about plants of the past and all of that great heritage. And you have an amazing heritage with with hyacinths, for example, over the years. But of course, new developments, we said, are important for breaking new colours, kind of advancing the plant family, but also being a plant with a purpose. And I think maybe 50 years from now, you will look back on the Black Hyacinth with fondness, the same way that we do, say, the first Begonias, the first non-stop series Begonias 50 years ago from Germany. We will look back the same on Hyacinth Midnight Mystic as well.
5: Thanks there to Michael. Well, that's about it for today. Before you go, as always, here's a short list of what you can do in your garden this week. First up, I'd say... If you grow tomatoes and you have a heated propagator, or even if you just use ordinary seed trays, give them all a good wash. It's really frustrating. I know from experience, when you get things out in a few weeks' time and you want to start sowing your tomatoes and your chilies and whatnot, and everything's filthy and you have to wash it and it takes ages to dry, and if it doesn't dry, the compost sticks to it. So do it now, get a little bit ahead, give it time to dry properly, and then your seed sowing will be all the more pleasurable. And it's also time to prune your autumn raspberries. If you can't remember which of which, autumn fruiting raspberries tend to have the remains of the last few bits of fruit and flower right at the very top of the stem, whereas summer fruiting raspberries, if you've been on top of it, you'll have pruned out the canes you need to prune already. They're a bit more branched. So yeah, look for those strong, very, very upright canes with the remains of little bits of fruit and, and flower at the top and prune autumn raspberries right down to the ground and give them a bit of fertiliser as well, something like pelleted chicken manure, or a bit of bonfire ash, a bit of wood ash, will do them all the world of good. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It's the best way to help us share the love of gardening. That's all for now. So from me, Gareth Richards, goodbye and thanks for listening.